0: Hello, welcome to this week's episode of Motos and Friends. My name is TJ, Associate Editor with Ultimate Motorcycling, and this week we have two exciting segments for you. First off, Arthur is speaking with Senior Editor, Nick De about the new Aprilia RSV4 Superbike that he got to ride at Laguna Seca. Following on from that, I'm speaking with Thad Wolfe, AMA Hall of Fame Superbike racer. He chats with me about how he got started and the interesting path he took to get him to where he is today.
1: So, Nick, I I gather that you got to ride the Aprilia RSV4 around Laguna Seca, no less. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, that was an experience. I mean, Laguna Seca, you know, has its own charm. It's, you know, a legendary track in the two and four-wheeled worlds. And, um... The RSV4 is a top class, you know, superbike and something that I'm always excited to ride. So it was definitely a good time.
1: I can imagine. So is this a completely new bike or is it is it just sort of significantly upgraded or just, you know, bold new graphics?
2: So with the RSV4, you know, they've never done a true from the ground up redesign like you've seen with the CBR1000 RRR Fireblade. You know, the bmws 1000r ducati panigalli etc etc since 2009 the rsv4 has essentially been slowly updated and just curated in that sense and, and just engineered to where it is now and it's always maintained a leading position in the superbike class now if you compare a 2021 rsv4 versus a 2009 every single part is different from generation to generation, and it's essentially being updated on a two to three year schedule, and that's sort of what's made that bike so good, in my opinion, is that it's just being refined consistently, you know, every couple of years or so, and just you know keeping it at the pointy end of the pack. But uh, this year they've done a lot of updates, so you have for the first time a visual update. Kind of stepping away from that original miguel galuzzi design and it's also integrated aerodynamics in a much more thoughtful way which are all the rage with superbikes these days you also have a revised seating position you see you sit a little bit more down in the chassis you have a, a little bit more wind protection according to aprilia that's 11 more wind protection for the rider
1: that's pretty significant
2: it is especially when you're cresting turn one at laguna seca which um
1: buck 60 crest over that
2: yeah so you know that comes with its own complications and uh, I'll take any any sort of advantage I can get at that at that point Um, (laughs) you know the for for those that really care about the spec sheets the engine is also um, updated it's grown in displacement and they've done that by lengthening the stroke length and now to compensate for that longer stroke the crankshaft has been lightened So that allows it to spin up a little bit more aggressively and that's probably the first thing that i noticed when i got on the new rsv4
1: (laughs) was you touched the throttle and it wanted to take off
2: oh yeah i mean it's not this uh sort of frightening step into the unknown it's still very much the you know legendary v4 motor that we've known for years at this point but it just has that extra little pep in its step these days (laughs) you get this awesome low end torque tons and tons of mid-range and then top end power that you know uh, the the average rider is really not going to be able to exploit unless you're on an airstrip or something like that so you know
1: it's wow do they quote horsepower and torque numbers or
2: they do so um the engine displacement increased to 1099 cc Peak horsepower is the same as last year's uh, RSV4-1100 factory, which is 217 horsepower. And then- 217 horsepower? I know. It's it's still not enough. I don't know. I just feel like we need another one. <laughs> it's insanely powerful. And um, okay. then peak torque also went up two points with the engine update um, to 91 Foot pounds of torque, uh, if I remember. Wow. Nine, 90 or 91. So, either way, you're talking wow. silly, silly numbers. Now, despite that sort of godlike horsepower uh, on tap, it's still a very rideable engine. You know, it's tractable, um, it doesn't have the sort of stereotypical inline four personality where a lot of its power is up top with the v4 you really do get a very good distribution of power where you do get good low end, you do get good um mid-range and then you have top ends that is just insane and i think that's that's really fun you know at at a track like laguna seca you can only open it up in a handful of spots but that's where that low end and mid-range really shines when you're coming out of say turns two three four driving up the hill of five you can get on the gas and just dig in and feel that 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 swing arm just putting it down to the ground as best as it can and uh yeah it's wow it's it's fun
1: yeah aprilia their electronics suite was always they were really first at the the forefront of electronics sort of way back when they kind of took their world superbike electronics and started putting it on you know on their street bikes, I suspect because they didn't have the money to, to redesign them. So, so, ah, oh, you know what, let's just take the race electronics and stick them on. So, but presumably those are pretty refined now. Those are, those are pretty good.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So Aprilia's APRC package has been around for a number of years at this point. And, and like you said, it was all derived from world superbike. And to that point, the RSV4 is, isn't just derived from world superbike, it was designed literally for world superbike and it ended up winning its soft in its sophomore year of competition it won its first title. And right, you know, the, the joke about Aprilia is that they're a racing brand that sometimes sells their bikes to consumers. <laughs> you know, a lot of what you see in an Aprilia is stuff that the World Superbike teams and, and racers asked for. And so it it trickled down to the, the end user. And that, I, that's something that's really cool with the brand. And like you said, the, the electronics, you know, as you'd expect, you get launch control, a pit limiter, cornering ABS, cornering traction control, wheelie control, the full suite as you'd expect. And, you know, I think Ducati, Aprilia, BMW, they're sort of upfront when it comes to electronics and Yamaha as well. But given the conditions we rode in at Laguna Seca, I was really happy we had that traction control, typical Monterey weather. So uh, uh, <laughs>
1: Cl- yeah. clouded over, foggy, you know, yeah.
2: damp. Yeah, exactly. So okay. dense fog, track was damp in the beginning of the day. It started to dry up and then you started getting mist and, you know, things that just uh, sapped your confidence a little bit. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you know, so for me, having the the traction control on the little paddle shifter on the left handlebar. You know, if you get into a part of the track where you're not, not so ready and willing to push, you can kind of jack up the traction control on the fly and in the areas where you're comfortable, you can dial it down again. But for me, Aprilia systems are typically invasive, and they're just sort of working in the background and, and still allow a good amount of drive and things like that. And, and that—that's what I really enjoy about their systems. Yeah, they've always been like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, they're really, they're really good. So presumably, the sus- the suspension is uh, electronically controlled still. Yes. So you presume you can dial in different packages and, and and so on.
2: Yes, 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 yes. So so on the factory model, you do have the, you know, top tier Allens semi-active uh, suspension. And on the base model RSV4, it has conventional sacs suspension. Now, just as a quick comment on the conventional suspension, you're going to be saving a significant amount of money, you know, to the tune of seven grand, essentially, um, if you go with the base model, because, you know, you don't have all the electronic bits and bobs. And instead of forged wheels, you get cast. Right. And in truth, the conventional suspension is solid. It's good. Nothing to complain about. When you take it to the factory level, you do get that semi-active suspension. You can tune your damping from the dash, and it's using the uh, uh, objective-based tuning interface, as Olin's calls it. And uh, you know, you tune it a little bit differently. Instead of using nomenclature like uh, rebound damping or compression damping, it's broken down into things like braking support, mid-corner support, acceleration support, and for someone that might not be as well-versed in how to adjust suspension, that can really help you. Now, that said, its performance, I think, is very admirable, and I really enjoy it. On the racetrack, you know, I can come into pit lane and make some quick setting changes and do it without ever getting off the bike or touching a tool. The only thing that you will have to break out the tools for is preload adjustment. But overall, I think it does a very good job. And, you know, as I kept playing with it throughout the day, I kept getting more and more confident with the chassis and just building much more stability into the chassis. And that, that was the cool thing about it is you can literally see the progress you're making, you know, within a couple button clicks and that, I always think that's really cool. So
1: Yeah. So clearly, I mean, this is an absolutely exceptional, you know, track bike, but is it just exclusively for the track? I, I mean, or is it like if you're going to ride on the street and occasionally on track, you should really get the Tuono or or is the RSV4 capable on, on the street too?
2: Yeah. So we didn't get to ride it on the street, but, you know, think about the application. I, I would say if you're if you're going to be spending most of your time in the canyons on the street, the Tuono is, you know, has 90% of the experience of the the RSV4. Now we're well, maybe 80% of the experience of the RSV4 because the engines are different and the, you know, you're sitting upright versus super sports style. but you know, if riding track is your focus, then the RSV4 might be your style. Now, the problem is, they both can be ridden on the street and, you know, they're both kind of, you know, they can both in, be ridden those, on the track actually. Yeah. And, and <laughs> right. a, a two on on the track is, is great. You know, so <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's a bit of a Sophie's choice there. Um, <laughs> right. but no, I, I would say it just comes down to application. Like really, if you're a track focused writer, then the RSV4 is probably more your thing because you're really just going to be hunting lap times and, if you don't care about street comfort, then whatever you're going to be on the track. Um, if street riding really more is your, is your deal, then yeah, Tuono kind of makes a little bit more sense, but that's not to say you can't do either one.
1: Sure. So overall, you know, I, it's, I I kind of feel a little ridiculous asking about comfort on a super sport bike, but, but over the years, I've definitely found very different experiences with the super sport riding position. Um, so, I mean, I remember the Yamaha R1 from a couple of years back just felt absolutely perfect to me. I got on the thing and I got halfway down pit lane. I was like, my God, this bike feels like it's been custom made for me. What, what's the RSV4 like?
2: Yeah, so it's, it's definitely become more comfortable. It's still a very committed riding position, as you'd expect with a, you know, super sports, sure. super bike riding position. But with the aerodynamic things that they've integrated into the, the bodywork, uh, raising the windscreen height, and then subsequently also lowering the uh, seat height along with the footrest height, and then readjusting the design of the fuel tank. So it's become slimmer. Um, Comfort-wise, as far as super super sports, super bikes go, I would say it's definitely more on the comfortable side. you I feel like I have plenty of room and I stand at five foot, 10 inches tall. So, um, I would say, yeah, it's definitely on the more comfy spectrum when we look at the class overall. And then you also have a really plush seat, which is not something that most people commonly associate with these motorcycles. So again, comfort, I would say it's doing pretty good. And, you know, the, the seating position has changed a little bit, you know, The RSV4 has sort of been typically Italian and you'll understand this more so than anyone. When I say this is, you know, Italian motorcycles have always, you've always sat sort of atop the chassis versus you think back to the early Japanese sport bikes and you're really tucked into the chassis, sort of your, your typical GSXR seating position. Right. And they're not quite going in the direction of the Japanese yet, but you are tucked in a little bit more, You do feel like you have a bit more wind protection and, you know, it's, it's uh, definitely a different riding experience than the previous gen RSV4. It's not night and day difference, but there is a difference.
1: Okay. Um, I guess the sort of the last thing is in, in the supersport category, everything's about weight. Did Aprilia quote weight numbers on this? Did they quote a curb weight on it?
2: They do. And Interestingly, I guess the first question is: is it lighter or heavier? So it it's it's tough. If you compare it to the <laughs> RSV4, um, the the twenty nineteen to twenty twenty RSV4 eleven hundred factory, it is six pounds heavier. But that doesn't really tell the whole story. I would say that with the chassis uh, changes that they've made, because they made some really minor tweaks to the the chassis geometry and uh, then a more notable tweak where they shorten the wheelbase about a half inch and they also integrated a uh, MotoGP derived swing arm that is significantly stiffer around the axle and it is now that underslung swing arm that you would see on a previous MotoGP bike but then you have to factor in what we were just talking about with the seating position and overall i would say it's made the bike feel much more nimble. Which, if you think about the RSV4 historically, it's a bike that always wanted direction from the rider. You had this insanely stable chassis, but the trade-off then was you kind of needed to direct it into the corners, out of the corners.
1: Little bit of a little bit of a physical bike. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah.
2: and you know that's that's the compromise with motorcycles. If it's not a physical bike, then it's extremely agile, which can often translate to nervousness. And for my money, I would rather go with something that maybe takes a little bit more out of me at the end of the day, but I'm very, very um, uh, trusting of what's underneath me. So then we, we go back, you know, to the weight thing and yeah, it is, a few pounds heavier than the RSV4 1100 factory. And it's also Euro five compliant. So it has more emissions stuff in the mix, but it doesn't feel heavier. And as you know, with super bikes, you know, every gram counts. So the fact that I would compare it to the, the 16 RSV4 the, or and the 17 generation up through 20 and say that it has a little bit more agility on those bikes. Uh, that's, that, that's a good step forward in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. Okay.
1: All right. So overall your impression of the bike sounds pretty favorable. It sounds like you, you had a whale of a time actually.
2: I did, you know, conditions were not the best, but uh, you know, on a press trip, you got to make do. We got some, some dry laps. um, But uh, even in those unfavorable, unfavorable conditions, the, the RSV4 was favorable. So, you know, it's, it's been at the top of the class for a very specific reason because of everything that it delivers to the user. It has amazing electronics. You get a motor that is just absolutely bonkers and you get a chassis that, well, it stood the test of time and, you know, proven itself time and time again. So for me, the RSV4 is really a testament to iterative improvements, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, you know, that can make sense sometimes, but, um, you know, it, this bike has, has really just gotten better over the years. Aged like a fine wine, if you will.
1: You know, <laughs> but, um, awesome. Yeah. Terrific. All right. Well, thanks, Nick. I appreciate it. Sounds like a, sounds like a great machine. Yeah, it is. Uh, I'll talk to you later. Thank well, you so much. Thanks.
0: That was great. Thanks to Nick DeSenna for sharing feelings and findings on the Aprilia RSV4 Superbike. Next up, we have Thad Wolf, Hall of Fame AMA superbike racer. As a kid in the early 70s, Thad had no idea about, quote, all this road racing stuff. He chats to me about the story of his chance meeting with Japanese emigrant Pops Yoshimura and how his race life panned out from there on in.
3: Okay, well, I'm, first of all, I'm glad to be uh, part of this their podcast and the magazine, uh, and um, yeah, it seems like a... Kind of a neat thing to do. I listened to one of your podcasts so far, and uh, anything involved with motorcycling is uh, I'm interested in. So <laughs> here here we go
4: yeah likewise yeah thank you very much it's uh, nice to hear from you um that it's uh interesting because that's that's what we want we just want to put out all sorts of information and interesting personalities involved in the motorcycling world so that people have something to listen to when they're.
3: well i'll try to make i'll try to make it as interesting as possible but uh uh no promises tj
4: <laughs> you are a very interesting
3: gentleman that Wolf. <laughs> thank thank you very much uh okay
4: <laughs> so you um i gather you rode dirt bikes and you, you didn't plan to be a racer
3: well uh growing growing up uh, no i i didn't have a a background with you know with my parents or grandparents or you know in motorcycling at all right and so uh gosh the only you know my my introduction to two wheels was uh, waking up on christmas morning at five years old and seeing a red monarch 20 inch wheeled bicycle underneath the christmas tree and uh gosh I remember that like it was yesterday you know <laughs> and uh so i was a bicycle bicyclist you know ripping around the neighborhood learning how to try to wheelie and what have you and and I used to see motorcycles, you know, going down the street or, uh, I grew up in in Thousand Oaks, California. And so we had a lot of back in the sixties and a lot of open fields with, uh, you know, mainly, mainly horses really. And, um, then the motorcycle thing, dirt bike thing started kind of happening. And, uh, I started seeing a couple of, you know, dirt bikes every once in a while, but I'll have to, I had an experience that uh that was so eye-opening and it was with uh a neighborhood father frank cody father of jim cody who Race dirt bikes too a little bit back then he came driving through the neighborhood with his white chevy pickup and said hey any of you kids want to go see motorcycles race you know jump in the back truck fantastic and my parents said my parents said well okay i guess <laughs> they weren't so sure about <laughs> frank because you know frank always had a big cooler course ready to go but uh so they let me and a couple other kids go and we went out to what is now uh, North ranch in, in, um, kind of the Westlake village, Calabasas, Westlake village sort of area. Mm. And lo and behold, we witnessed 1968. I was nine years old, um, trans trans am races. So early, early motocross series racing in the United States. So it was a huge deal with all the best motocrossers. Well, certainly from. Southern California and all, but really wow. across the states, it was a trans-am race, and and lo and behold, it was like the first year that the Europeans, you know, uh, Torsten Hallman had already been over here a little bit, but um, Torsten on a Husky and uh, Joel Robert and Roger Decoster on twin pipe Czs, and if I can remember, Barry, um, uh, a couple other Europeans, I think Aki Onsen and. Uh, and so, so I
4: <laughs> would have been so exciting.
3: <laughs> I had I had no idea what we what we were in store for. And all of a sudden I'm watching the best motocross racers in the world on this course that was out in the middle of uh, uh, the fields and hills and what have you out there, Oak Groves. But there was a, uh, a movie set uh, like a, you know, looked like an old ghost town movie set where they'd film Films, old westerns, and what have you. I'm right yeah. And you, and they, they made a big mud mud hole, with a, brought out a water, t- and so you'd go through the mud hole up the steep hill, through right through the center of the big barn, and down the main street of this old ghost town. And so the the riders, you can only imagine. And as a matter of fact, in later, I don't know, probably about eight eight ten years ago, I talked to. Robert and DeCoster about that yes and when they when they remembered that and started talking about it in Belgium I said hey you guys talk, speak English will you <laughs> they were like two kids again talking about the, their their youth so anyway I got to experience this and it just you know climbing up oak trees and looking down upon and oh my gosh it was uh well anyway it was quite eye-opening to see what was going on out there I bet so I wanted a dirt, I wanted a dirt bike in the worst way okay you know <laughs> I bet yeah as a small yeah. child you'd have been super excited <laughs> okay nine, nine-year-old kid yeah so my uh my dad said well you better start making money well I was already mowing lawns and throwing the News Chronicle newspaper and a we lived in a really hilly area so riding your bicycle up and down and throwing newspapers and Going up and down Thousand Oaks Boulevard, washing windows, and, and made enough money to go three ways. My dad spent, we all spent almost $100 a piece, my dad, my brother, and I. And we went down to the art to see the archers at the Caneo Honda and bought a mini Trail 50. <laughs> and so that was uh, like late 69, early, early 70. And uh, so I was another typical little Southern California kid on a little motorcycle and then not long after that the movie on any sunday came out and so that was an absolute game changer to watch malcolm and mert and mcqueen and see the, that movie and you know you can talk to anyone that saw that movie yeah. i think that if you haven't seen it, really it
4: yeah if you ride a motorcycle and you haven't seen on any sunday then definitely give that a whirl
3: and make sure it's on any sun the first on any sunday not on any sunday two or any you know so that was that came out in 1971 and i was uh 11 just turning 12 and man that was that was it and uh (laughs) but it was all about dirt bikes you know and and so i was lucky to you know get a little bit bigger and better bike here and there and kept working my tail off to see what i could do and luckily old frank cody would take me out to the the races every once in a while or dirt bike riding out to and so i I didn't really get a chance to race much at all but uh but growing up here uh then you know you you turn 15 and a half in california back then and and guess what you could get yourself a a permit to ride a motorcycle right. on the street.
4: <laughs> well, wow, that's, that's nice and,
3: and young. Yeah, young. So you can imagine a 15 and a half year old kid, what's on his mind. And and now he's street legal. So he can, you know, <laughs> so I got a little hot. I, I sold my dirt bike and, um, I got a little Honda 100 and soon after a Honda XL 350. And so we had so much fun in high school and, uh, after high school, you know, making tracks all around the canal valley here and going out to the desert when we could and that sort of thing and so uh that was you know it was a really neat uh lifestyle upbringing lifestyle rural lifestyle for me and sometimes
4: what's the freedom
3: oh my god well the freedom you know you 15 and a half and you're on a street legal motorcycle on are the road. <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh
4: yeah
3: that's and those are well, we got more stories for another time there, but, uh, I have to, re- so uh, kind of a game changer, I guess you'd say in my life was when, um, my motocross high school buddy, Brian Cathy came to school with a, a cycle magazine article and inside was a, a double a, a spread of Scott Clow's RD 350 production racer. And it was, the photograph was at Ontario on the front Straight away at Ontario Motor Speedway and the article was about Scott he was winning most of the races out there you know how to build an RD to go road racing and my friend Brian said, hey let's let's get these couple of RDs and we'll go road racing. And I looked at him like, no dude, what, are you, what are you talking about that's crazy I would never I would never do that. Well, you know uh never say never I guess and so before too long, uh i was trying to put number plates and safety wiring up an rd little ratty old rd to get out to ontario for my no, first nice. race actually i made a uh i made a bumper attachment on my little vw baja bug and i towed it out there with the front wheel up in the air the back wheel on the ground i got a picture of that it's pretty <laughs> it's
4: pretty funny
3: i'd but, love to see that <laughs> <laughs> i uh there, So there, Brian and I were lined up on the last row of the race at Ontario. There's like at least 65 people. And we couldn't even see the starter, let alone, you know, because there are so many people and so much two-stroke smoke coming up. And, well, so anyway, that was the start of our uh, little road racing uh, how, did, how did you
4: know the race had started if you were that in, in a big crowd like that? You just wait until everybody moved, I guess. People's,
3: People started going, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And how did it, do, it how really go? Fun. You know, AFM, the American Federation of Motorcycling, back then, um, our races were very, very popular, well attended, and you know, we we had Ontario, Riverside, and Willow Springs down here, and then Sears Point up north, and it was it was quite a big deal, and so uh, to to start off not really even knowing what the heck was, you know, which way the track went at 19 turns at Ontario, you had to raise your head up and look around. Like, am I even going the right way? It was lost out there. And, uh, (laughs) but to, to finish, you know, maybe I finished 30th that first race. I don't remember, but then the next race at Riverside, you know, I finished 20th and, and I made my, kept making my way forward and making the bike better. And it was a neat, uh, challenge you know to and i looked at scott clow and the gingerelli brothers and dick fuller and all guy, guys like that winning yes. the class and i said man i can't believe and then you know race after race i was getting closer and closer to those guys until and this was 1977 i raced a couple a few a few races so in sounds, 1978
4: sounds like you were, a, you were a fast guy straight off you weren't you didn't have any fear you just thought about winning well, the dirt
3: bikes, you know, taught me how to ride the motorcycle, of course. And then out in the local canyons here, you know, um, you know, heading out to the rock store and the Decker and Holland and all the canyons that we have out here taught me, taught me how to ride, you know, on the, on the road and right. just trans transferred your skills to the, the racetrack. And so by the end of 78, I was able to start beating those guys and, uh. And then in 1979, it all kind of came together. I won the four, the the heavily contested 410 production class, and had more points than anyone in AFM that year. And so that was that was good. But what was the next step? Well, their cycle magazine was in Westlake Village, you know, part of Thousand Oaks, in our little town. Yeah. And Phil Schilling, and I'm gonna I'm gonna circle back in a moment and talk more about good old Phil Schilling. <clears throat> he was instrumental in helping me out a bit, but uh, he Phil hooked me up with Neil Sorensen from Minneapolis, and we I sold the RD and you know threw in twelve hundred bucks, and Neil spent the rest, and we got a nineteen eighty uh, G model TC two hundred and fifty G model, and went racing in the AMA novice class. <clears throat> and had a great year i the bike never failed us at all and um, i won most of my races and i won the novice championship fairly easily to tell you the truth really but um <laughs> so it was kind of a storybook year because you know i was winning races and and if you remember the the trophy everyone everyone back then remembers the trophy girl lynn griffiths and uh so she was the trophy girl for the all the grand national races and formula one and Superbike and all the races and she <laughs> she was also the trophy girl for the novice
4: class wow. as a matter
3: of fact the first the, my first race in Elkhart Lake Wisconsin she was going through the pits handing out cig- camel cigarettes of course miss camel of course <laughs> and she no wonder you went so fast <laughs> well I, yeah as a matter of fact I did smoke cigarettes back then and had to smarten up and and quit and become healthy as time went on uh, all you kids listening you <laughs> but but she oh. said But so she threw me a pack of cigarettes and she said, good luck. And I looked at her and I said, I'll see you in the winter circle. And she looked (laughs) at me (laughs) and said, all right, kid, you know, that's uh, okay, kid, you know. And so I just totally smoked everybody in that first race. I had, well, anyway, I ended (laughs) up winning and in the winter circle. And I I said to her, "I, I told you I'd see you here. And she looked at me and she goes, oh, yeah, you did. And I said, well, I never lie to a pretty lady. (laughs) <laughs> and then on Lynn Griffiths Sneak. and I were having fun in the winter, so you know, so anyway, that that novice year was was great. but and most people would go to the two fifty expert class after that. And what had happened with me, luckily, I got involved with a fellow by the name of Minoru Matsuzawa. Now he was a Japanese fellow, Matsu, everyone called him. Right. He originally came over to america pops Yoshimura and that whole crew and so he started off on his own in uh the late 70s and started his own little little speed shop i guess you'd call it motorcycle speed shop called escargot enterprises of america so and i always wondered why he wanted to use that name and i and i think it was just for fun but anyway I Great name. yeah for those bike. that
4: don't know escargot is uh, a snail isn't it french for snail French
3: snail uh yeah play on words I guess Great,
4: great so you became great friends
3: well right up so he could hardly speak English though he'd been over here for a number of years but still couldn't speak very English very well but we somehow ended up going to Riverside Raceway we had the whole track to ourselves one weekday and I rode his super bike and I went I did some very respectable times and it went really good and so next thing you know well we're going to go race in the superbike class for 1981
4: wow. and what and was I that thought, like wow,
3: I, I I just couldn't believe that you know jumping up from a 250 novice kid to the superbike class because you know that was between Superbike and then Formula One, of course, was the pinnacle of racing in the United States. And you had yes. and the up and comers were the the Freddie Spencers and the Eddie Lawsons and the Wayne Rainey's and et cetera, et cetera <clears throat> Mike Baldwin. I could go on and on. And so uh, well, I was jumping in the deep end there. And but before we so the first races, we're getting ready for Daytona, but Matsu says, says, Hey, sad, and, and they have a hard time with the TH, so my name was sad and said <laughs> sad. we're going we're going down to suzuki this afternoon so we went on down in the evening in the dark i met up with the japanese dignitary in their suits and they rolled up the door to the back at shop at suzuki at brea where they still are and lo and behold is there's an rg 500 two-stroke grand prix racer sitting there underneath the fluorescent lights with a huge spares kit next to it wow and i looked over at matsu and he had this little grin on his face and i and all i could think to myself is man i'm in deep now <laughs> 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 and yeah they so suzuki had this extra it was the last year of the twin shock uh, rg500 before the single shock came out and they had an extra you know brand new motorcycle with a spares kit and they said hey well let's give it to this kid and see what he can do and so we went off to daytona and you can only imagine you know the, the daytona the 200 miler and then the super bike race the beginning of the season
4: straight in at the deep end. Well,
3: well it was a obviously it was a big deal of course but uh it didn't go so well for me. Uh, the superbike we were doing okay, and uh, but it had trouble, and I had to stop. And then the Formula One race, I had quali- We had trouble with that RG, and I would qualified sixty fourth with bike with trouble, but we got it worked out, and so I went from sixty fourth to twenty fourth in four laps, and I was excited to go yeah. forward in the race. Oh, and I, I slid out. I crashed the bike, and the RG with the carburetors on the side of the motorcycle. You know, I was done. You couldn't pick it up and go. You're, you're, mm-hmm. you know, and carburetors hanging there, and I was done. And so my Daytona didn't go so well. And to add insult to injury, uh, the the Monday morning Daytona Morning Journal had a picture of me crashing the motorcycle, <laughs> and so. And so it was, you know, my, the start to my pro or, you know, my big bike career didn't get off to a great start, needless to say. And also to make matters even worse, Roxy Rockwood, the announcer back then, he wrote an article in that next week's cycle news. His editorial was how he feels that novices should not be able to go straight to the big bikes. And he didn't, he didn't print my name. But everyone knew, if, if you knew, you, you'd know he, he was talking. He was using me as an example.
4: Yeah, well, it sounds as though it was an unusual, and maybe you were the only one who'd done that sort of a leap.
3: So I had to uh, go, th- <clears throat> go through the next month and a half or almost two months with that in mind until the next race at Elkhart Lake was coming up and where I had so much great success on, as a novice. But anyway, things turned around for me and I, I did well. I, I was top 10 in the superbike race and, uh, in the formula one race, uh, I made my way forward and some people had bike trouble and a couple of people fell over and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And the next oh. thing I know, Bruce hammer and I battled to the finish line and I beat him for third place. And so now I'm in the winner's circle and, uh, and so that was kind of nice well wow. yeah to make matter to make matters even better roxy came up to me after the winter circle and he said hey you know what i'm sorry about that article <laughs> and that made me feel really good that roxy you know did that and so that was <laughs> that was nice so anyway i um that was 1981 beginning of 81 so i had a learning career <clears throat> a learning curve of in 1981 to get ready for this 1982 season which if your uh listeners know about back then was really the pinnacle i, I don't want to say it's the pinnacle of racing in the united states i mean i can't say that mm-hmm. but it was mm-hmm. the last year of the thousand cc superbikes, and it was hotly contested the manufacturers wanted to win that championship you know with with the likes of the the riders that i was telling you about and then in formula one you know you had Kenny Roberts would come over for um you know world he's ruling the world but he'd come over for Daytona and Laguna and so you're racing against Kenny and everybody and it was uh, and so it was quite a a neat year a fun year to be involved in all that and I ended up as uh I guess you'd say the top non-factory I mean nowadays maybe you would say it's a Satellite team or something like that, but yes, back yes. then you were kind of considered a privateer. If you weren't a factory rider, you were a privateer. So I was the top. I was the top privateer. I got sixth in Superbike and fourth in Formula One for the season. And so you know the AMA, my AMA season was really good. But that year was, I think back, it was such an incredible year because there was so, so much more racing that I was exposed to. I after daytona i got a chance to take the super bike over to imola italy for the their big race over there in europe one day race was the imola the 200 and so this the second class was super bike and i got third so made it to the winter circle in uh with the with the big bouquet of flowers and the big bottle of champagne and two weeks over there was just so much fun um
4: you you know, know,
3: what an experience. A, yeah, for us, I was 21 getting ready to turn 22 and had never been out of the States. And it was, you know, quite exciting. I, I could really go on and on about that. But anyway, there was that race. Towards the end of the season, there was the Caesars Palace Grand Prix, which was the form, Formula One had uh, a race in the Caesars Palace parking lot. And with Mario Andretti racing the John Player car and the whole, and so we were the, a support race was the motorcycle race. And so, uh, well, luckily the full factory guys had uh, other commitments, let's say. And and so it was more us top privateers. And I remember it, uh, racing it up with Dave Aldana and Harry Klinsman and amongst others and we had a good race going on but there was a lot of money up for the the win of that race big prize money six or seven thousand dollars to win that race it was you know it was back then it was something else and i i started pulling away from those guys and i was thinking oh this is going to be great until my shift linkage broke and i rode around in third gear and i think ended up in fourth place or something but uh so there was that race and then i don't know if every, if your re- listeners readers know about the the abc superbikers the the wide world of sports superbikers race at Carlsbad that would pit the the top motocrossers against the flat trackers against the road racers I and mean, everyone was on whatever kind of motorcycle you know you you wanted the dirt trackers were on xr 750 Harleys whereas everyone else pretty much had motocross bikes with 19 inch wheels and I got a I was on a Mako a wheelsmith Mako 490 and finished seventh in that race and um with in the racing against a lot of different people from the different disciplines you know I was lined up next to Jay Springsteen on the factory Harley and I'm thinking wow this is this is going to be fun
4: that's crazy.
3: yeah really it was it was a really neat well it was the the predecessor the the beginnings of supermoto i guess you know you we we call it here right and i thought it was really going to take off tj i I thought that that was really gonna take off as you know because it was just so neat to to get you know all the top motocrossers are against the top flat trackers and road racers and everyone's combined on one track that has dirt and street and jumps and pavement and it really was so exciting of course uh you know you can go back and youtube the those races but anyway that was just and i did more that season believe you me but anyway that was quite a uh, quite a year 82 i'll have to say and uh with a lot of a lot of great memories and and such
4: yeah that sounds full-on wow exciting times
3: well it was yeah it was it was of course and um well, so anyway to kind of to wrap up my uh road race career i guess I'll have to say i for for the following 83 season the the thousand cc superbike was not legal anymore and i couldn't come up with a 750 cc motorcycle for that and then if any if you remember um in the United states i guess worldwide really but mainly in the United states i think we Went into some recessionary times, mm-hmm. which hit our economy and racing fairly hard. And uh, but I was lucky to get a, a one-off ride from a Suzuki, uh, a rich fella from Japan that had ties to the factory. Sent, and he was in the clothing industry over there. And his color, his thing was pink. So he sent over a pink, white, and gray art, not an RG5, a, a Formula One four-stroke one basically the predecessor to a gsxr you know and so i raced that in the two in the daytona 200 which was kenny's kenny's last race and he he and then eddie's first year on the uh yamaha so those two guys had 500 grand pre-bikes bored out to 680s okay and kenny <laughs> they were the fastest kenny told me it was the fastest motorcycle he'd ever ridden by far <laughs> And uh so those two were first and second and and with Spencer and third, you know, I was running fourth place with four with with two laps to go and the motorcycle blew up on me and oh. stopped. So that was kinda I thought I was, you know, still gonna be looking good, but then you know I wasn't looking good. And then there's Roxy Rockwood saying, Hey, we Thad, come to the uh the radio show at the at the Hawaiian, the hotel that he had. And so I was the hard luck kid from, from Daytona in 83 and well, the the next race was, I had the RG 500 still and I went to Wisconsin and someone rammed into the back of me and the crash. Well, it almost, kind of almost did me in to tell you the truth.
4: Wow. And, uh, so were you injured?
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got busted up really badly and a very bad concussion and, internal injury and a lot of you know broken bones but yeah so things just didn't seem like they were going all that great but so so now so so now is the time that i turn turn back in time to talk about my old friend phil Schilling, the editor of cycle magazine oh yes yeah so so it's kind of i know it's kind of a strange well anyway what you'll you'll know what i'm how i connect this okay in in 79 phil found out that i'm a kid from town that starting a road race but i was a dirt bike kid so so out of the blue phil called me up and said hey thad i'm phil Schilling. i'd like to i'd like for you to ride a dirt bike for us out at indian dunes and do a wheelie through the water the sand wash out there and you know for the magazine for their photo shoot dave hawkins was going to shoot it and we're going to uh pay you we want to pay you 125 and i said okay i'll do it well that started my um photo modeling career i guess you would so i rode for cycle on occasion and then started to do more more work for within the industry and uh, between dave hawkins the photographer dave hawkins and robin robin riggs i started doing a couple of jobs for honda which right. that was kind of that was that was a big deal of course and so uh that so phil kind of you know was instrumental in kind of getting me going in that industry but uh after that crash in wisconsin i'm laid up and starting to heal up and honda approached me and said hey we want you to ride for us for our ads and such but also television commercials and we're going to help you get your screen actors guild card your sag card and you can uh you know, ride for television commercials, and you're gonna, you know, make this money and residual payments and and all that. And I, uh, I said, well, I guess you know, someone's telling me it's time to, you know, head in a different direction in life here. Yeah,
4: still involved with two wheels, but yeah, it's giving you another segue you into another sort of career.
3: Well, you know, it was riding motorcycles and now I'm getting paid <laughs> so, <laughs> some good, you know, some decent money. And so I thought to my, I mean, it was a wonderful opportunity for me. And, uh, of course I took it. So I, it, a lot of people have a hard time stop when they stop racing and they, they don't, maybe they don't know exactly what they're going to do in life. And, and they have trouble with that, you know, that transition in life. Whereas I was very fortunate. To have this opportunity, and um, and so I, I went off in that direction. And um, not only was riding the motorcycles for all, all, all the big four Japanese manufacturers, but diff all the different magazines and 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 all you know, all the advertising for many other companies and such. I've worked with I've worked for and with you know, so many really neat people within the industry, it's really been been fun to be involved with <clears throat> all the different people within the industry too along the way and uh, well I was able to well to 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 stop my racing career and then move, move into a, a, the next chapter in life and you know and I hate to say this but you know you, you gotta you gotta somehow make money in life of course. And if, if you don't you know you're you know what are you gonna do so
4: I have nowhere to live <laughs> So, so you- I
3: guess so I was very fortunate that things have come my way. And it's just really been neat to um to to know that I've, you know, that <clears throat> motorcycling has been a, a passion, of course. And a you know, ever since I was, you know, at the trans am race in Westlake Village watching Roger DeCoster and Joel Robert. And to be able to, you know, now I'm 62 years old and I'm well, I'm not retired yet. I still work in the industry. You know, there's not as much work these days, but I don't have to work so much. And, um, but to look back at, at my whole life is, has been, it's been really neat to just kind of, uh, reflect on how things have gone. And, um, so anyway, I, I just, I always thank God that I am very fortunate that things have come my way in life. And I, I'd like to be able to think that I can promote motorcycling, you know, the, the sport of motorcycling in a in a good light yes, and be yes. part of the, the the solution, you know, not the problem, but the solution in <laughs> in our, you know, in our uh lives and with not only motorcycling but beyond that. But uh
4: and you are you're very much still involved with, with two wheels. You know, things are still moving forward for you. But talking about things coming your way, and you seem to sort of attract goodness in that way your uh, original gs 1000 super bike did somehow find its way back to you
3: okay you know what yeah i'm glad that you mentioned that that's kind of a it's kind of a neat story it's kind of a you know it's a fun story for me to tell and you know i but i did i did mention and this is kind of a sidebar i guess but i mentioned matsu my old mechanic matsu and oh yes well, he died, yeah, he died of prostate cancer in uh, 1998. You know, he 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 smoked cigarettes a lot and um, never went to the hospital and got, you know, his PSA numbers checked and such. Yeah. So so prostate cancer got him, and it's a, a real shame because, you know, I thought I was going to grow old with him and we could be friends and, you know, grow old together and all that, you know. And that was not meant to be, but but our, but to wind to wind back all the way to like 1975 or the the my relationship with Matsu goes back. This is this is kind of a strange story. Okay. In high school, I met up with a friend named Star Thompson, Star Jr. Well, Star Senior, big star. He was a flying tigers pilot, and so he was flying back and forth to Japan. And somehow, I don't know how, but somehow he got hooked up with Pops Yoshimura over there. All right. So he was the one that was instrumental in bringing not only Pops, but his son, Fujio, and Nabe, and Matsu, and bringing all of them over. And they started Yoshimura of the, in the United States. And they were in Simi Valley, the next town over from, from Thousand Oaks here. So one day, Big Star says, hey, you kids, you know, hop in the car. I'm going to take you. So he introduces me in the shop there to, to the, all the the Japanese that I mentioned. And I'm thinking, what the heck is going on here? I had no idea that this was going on. And they're working on a Z1. The Z1 had just come out shortly before that. And Yvonne Duhamel was riding for them. (laughs) And I was like, and I was just a dirt bike knucklehead kid back then i didn't know anything about street bikes but then i but i was exposed to that and i saw that and it it was very intriguing especially seeing their full leathers hanging there yvonne's full leathers with his boots with the toes with the with his boots ground off to where his toes would be sticking out (laughs) and i'm like wow these road racer guys i'm not sure about them but anyway that's when i met Matsu, and then you know Wind forward to 1981. And there we were at Riverside. And I was riding his superbike and we got together. We know the story. So, so the superbike that you asked me about, TJ, it wasn't legal anymore in 1983, <clears throat> but Suzuki loaned us a uh an a, a big, like, I don't know, six-gallon aluminum endurance tank with a quick fill dry brake. And we went out to uh, Willow Springs. I had a, f- a friend from back east riding Suzuki's Jeff Hino, and I rode and I was w- and so we rode the, the six hour. It was a kind of a big deal every year to have the six hour endurance race. It used to be at Ontario and, and so it was at Willow Springs now. Mm-hmm. And I, I started on the bike and we were leading and Jeff rode for an hour and I got back on the bike with a full tank of gas. And on the first lap that I was back on the bike going over the Monroe Ridge, turn six at, at, Willow Springs, something hit me in the back and I looked around and I didn't know what the heck was going on. So I yeah. went on down the back straightaway. And so if you, if anyone knows Willow Springs, you go into turn eight at Willow Springs at top speed. And, uh, as I bent the bike in the tire, the rear tire went flat. It just, it essentially just came off the rim. And what had happened is a section of rim had broke. And so I tried to save it and I'm riding off through the desert at about 130 mile an hour. And I thought, Mm -hmm. no, this this isn't going to end well. And I had to crash the motorcycle and that by, so that was the last time I rode the motorcycle. And so Matsu went in and I, I ruined that Gas tank. Yoshimura wasn't too happy about ruining that mm. expensive gas tank. I bet. But I, uh, I had so the Matsu was taking the bike apart, and and you know the bike was history and everything. So for the most part, so I kept uh, the old gas tank that was in good shape, and I kept the seat and and the fa- and different body parts that were we had multiple body parts, and most were damaged by the time I was you know, finished racing that dog on motorcycle. And so I kept a bunch of that stuff instead of throwing it away.
4: Yeah. Well, Matsu,
3: the yeah. Well, I'm a, kind of a hoarder, I guess. Just ask my wife, Jody, she'll tell you. And so I, uh, <laughs> so Matsu went ahead and took the bike, started taking the bike apart, sold the RG 500 brakes to make a little money. He needed to, he needed money. And so he started selling off a few parts, expensive parts with the bike and, and that's when a customer came in and said, hey, Matsu, I want you to build a, a bike like that's for me. So Matsu took the bike and then put different body work on it and some different brakes and wheels and such. And so that guy, which I never really knew, knew who that guy was per se, but he rode the bike a couple times at Willow and, and that sort of thing, but he had... <clears throat> passed on and he willed the bike to denny fryer and his nickname he's an old road racer an old afm racer his nickname was freeway fryer and that's a whole nother story for another freeway fryer <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. well yeah <laughs> so one day oh you know a couple years ago he denny called me up and said dad come out to act in here and bring your van i got something for you well he gave me the motorcycle and he knew that, I guess he felt as though that motorcycle, the, the rightful place for it would be back with me. And gosh, I couldn't believe how nice it was of him to do that. So wow, he did. Brilliant. I, yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine how I felt? I'm I brought sure. the bike home and immediately as fast as I could, I took off all the parts that I knew were not, you know parts from the original race bike and now i'm scrounging around up in the attic and in sheds and i'm pulling down old gas tanks and seats and seat and fenders and fairing and and i reunited all the original parts bodywork to the to the original motorcycle and got it going again as a matter of fact yeah we it was um motorcyclist magazine i think the next to the last printed issue they they did a story it was a cover shot and they did a story on the bike and I and so uh but yeah so that and so since then um I had a little bit of trouble with this motor and I'm putting together a new motor and I'm going to get it going again pretty quick here and put a slap a license plate on the back and I'm going to take it out on the street and um just kind of have fun Sort of relive in the glory days. Wow, of my youth.
4: that'll be amazing to be out riding, riding on the roads again, on that bike, that original bike.
3: I always thought to myself when I was ra- racing that motorcycle. I thought to myself, could you imagine if you could take this motorcycle, <laughs> make it, put a license plate on the back of it, and take it out? I mean, it would be like it would seem like it would be kind of criminal or illegal
4: <laughs>
3: but <laughs> but i'm gonna be i'm gonna be able to do that and i'm gonna do that soon and um you know tj you and i we've talked about the rock store and for your listeners that don't i think i think everybody knows i think what the, it's worldwide it's is. famous but
4: the rock store yes you you, you tell everybody who doesn't know
3: If you don't, if you've never been there and you know, it's interesting how you'll see people from all over the world that'll show up and it's our, it's our local motorcycle hangout on Mulholland little diner and, um, local little hangout that's been there since the, gosh, the late, late twenties. I think it used to be a stagecoach stop before it was a old gas station and it's on Mulholland. And if you've never been there, all you motorcyclists, you know, make it a point to show up hopefully on a sunday or you know it's a wonderful hangout for us in southern california here i know that there's people across the you know everywhere else in the world where they have their little motorcycle hangouts, so where we can all gather and check out our bikes and and shoot the breeze and it's really
4: just have a friendly chat with all sorts you get celebrities there you get everyday riders it's a great place
3: yeah so that's our place and um we're fortunate that we have it here in southern california but uh but anyway that's so um
4: that's how your your gs1000 came back to you
3: yeah so so getting this bike back together and to be able to ride again i joke because i've you know relived the glory days of my yeah but it's it brings back memories of of matsu and my racing and those times being in Italy on that motorcycle in the winter. So, I mean, I could go on and on, of course. And so, um, I think that it's neat. I think that motorcycles, you know, they're more than just, you know, two wheelers for us. They're, they're really something special in our lives and they're different for everybody else, everybody. And, um, everybody, I mean, I don't know. I'm preaching to the choir, right now about you know <laughs> how 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 bitching motorcycles are that's of course right
4: well that's right they have a heart and yeah motorcycle people know that in a soul. So you, you've remained still not exactly dabbling you're still you know fall on into two wheels you set um a record on an electric bike didn't you
3: oh yeah I'm glad you brought that up uh, um yeah Brian Brian Richardson he's a friend of mine from uh monterey virginia it's a very rural town in in virginia <clears throat> and one day when he was turning 50 both of us are the same age so uh I know, you know 12 years ago he was wondering what to do with his life and well he decided to build a custom electric motorcycle and he wanted it it, it looks kind of like a, a manx norton and uh, in the beginning, it, it actually had a dustbin, a full dustbin fairing and such. But he, he, the two of us got together. It's a strange way how we got connected. But he, he was looking for someone to ride his motorcycle at Mid-Ohio sports car race course in the first on-track exhibition of electric motorcycles so we're talking I said you know what hmm this is interesting and he said look that I'll, I'll, I'll buy you a plane ticket and my wife Betty is going to be there cooking for us and we're gonna camp out I'll bring you a sleeping bag and a tent and
1: <laughs> and <laughs> I, said, I
3: said I said okay I'll do it and I'm really glad that I did so I rode the <laughs> you know so this is in the infancy of uh you know, electric motorcycles, especially, you know, on a road race track, this was the first time. So we, um, we, we started, and I guess that was like, oh, oh, nine. And so for the following year, they uh, formed the TTX Grand Prix, and it was a road race series. And so we raced the bike, and the bike kept getting better and better with, you know, different chassis and suspension and on and on. And uh, finished second for the season behind Michael Barnes on that, and and we were actually we were a, a support race at Laguna Seca for um, MotoGP was at Laguna, and we raced during MotoGP weekend, which is a
4: fantastic, yeah, a, a big
3: a- deal. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of neat to just to to do that with Brian, but Brian's goal also was to cross this country, on that bike, and 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 so we did. We had a truck that. We towed a a big generator with us so we could charge the bike every couple hours. And so we went from Jacksonville, Florida to Santa Monica Pier in 72 and a half hours to uh, we added added batteries as luggage back there with, you know, more battery power and and got the cross country and made a cross country electric vehicle outright electric vehicle record back. Wow. yeah, I'm trying to remember coast, what year that was coast it to was coast. Probably coast to coast, 72 and a half hours.
4: Fantastic. And I wouldn't have imagined that.
3: The, <laughs> well, in the in the middle of uh Texas and Arizona desert in the summer, it was hot. Uh, I, bet. I
4: wouldn't have even, wouldn't have imagined that would have been achievable.
3: Oh my gosh, it was uh it was something else, but to be able to finish at the Santa Monica Pier with uh my wife Jody standing there you know waiting for us and to jump in the <laughs>
4: <and> <laughs> jump
3: in the nice cool ocean at the cool end of, down and uh yeah so it was just well it was another thing to do in life that was just you know involving motorcycling that was that just came my way you know out of the yeah, clear blue. That's, I hooked up that's an innovation. yeah yeah so um, hey but you know and like I've mentioned Jody a couple times and I want to kind of give a shout out to her. She's she's just, you know, been my she's my wife of uh oh I'm going on 12 years, going on 20, 22, 20, 22 year, 21, no. 22. Years. So she's the backup and,
4: crew.
3: Yeah, she's she's a wonderful lady. And you know, we we met when we were youngsters in the sixth grade. We were 11 years old at Caneo School and what we're buddies all the way through school and went our separate ways and, and got back together in the the late 90s and have been married like i say we got i proposed to her at the turn of the century at the stroke of midnight at the turn of the century right here as i look up on the hill where where we were and have been happily married since and with the daughter our daughter kelly i i just want to mention her too because she's the love of my life i she's a one
4: that's a nice romantic story as well how love finds a way well, it's a neat, yeah, you know, and well, here, here we are talking about
3: motorcycles, and everyone wants to hear about motorcycles, of course. But, um, but you know, whenever I get the chance to be able to maybe talk about what's important to me in my life, whether it's family, friends, or my faith, you know, I'd, I'd be the first one to stand up and say, "Hey, you know, I want to, I want to say something here." And um, mm. so, to get it, to get a chance to, well you know, to say what I've said is neat for me to be able to do. And um, because I think that there's a lot, there's more to life than motorcycles, of course. And and to uh, motorcycles, in, I think it enhances our lives, but uh, there, there's a lot to this wonderful life that, that we live.
4: Yeah, I was going to say now, just because um, I, I have a bit of insight into the fact that you're you're now working on your own RD350 this is something you're designing and building yourself for
3: well i've got a collection of motorcycles that uh old harleys and old bsas and but you know honda of course hondas and yamahas and what have you but i like old bikes and my oldest harleys it's over 100 years old right now and to be a, a a caretaker for the time being, because that bike's going to outlast me. Believe you me, TJ. I'm. Gonna, it's. It's <laughs> going to be. It's going to be around long after I'm gone. And it's really neat to be able to keep the old bikes on the road. I mean, that old of a motorcycle. I mean, not many people see a 1920 Harley Davidson putting around the the neighborhood or the out to the rock store. But it's fun to be able to be that guy to to keep uh, the history of motorcycling out there and. And not just in a museum, but on the road, you know, and. uh,
4: It's important, yeah, to have something that old that's still, you're still riding around. Yeah. And
3: so that, and then, you know, I, I'm, I build, I'm a fabricator and uh, my old metal shop teacher, Lynn Thomas taught me how to, he taught me a lot more than just how to, you know, hacksaw a hunk of metal and weld it back together and what have you. He's my mentor in life. And so the skills that I've picked up along the way, I've, you know make my own expansion chambers and yeah i'm gonna i'm building an rd 350s which is you know kind of a a love of mine from the past but i've with a different twist on it this time i guess but i um i enjoy working on the motorcycles in the garage and and going riding on them in the afternoon and and another thing i do i i'd have to say that what is really so important to me in, in life is my is my mountain bike my bicycle because there there i was you know with my five years old with my little monarch bicycles when i got started and (laughs) that's what i the most i don't want to say the most important bike to me is my mountain bike but kind of is because i'm on it almost every day riding you know either to the beach and back through the hills here or all over the place but um it keeps me young and in shape and you know you're you're riding, and you know a lot of guys want to, you know, use electric bicycles, electric assist bicycles, yes, to help them as they, you know, as people get older. Mm-hmm. It's it's but really it have their
4: place if you've had an injury or if, if you're getting a bit too weak for the regular cycling, but uh, yeah, their place.
3: it's really they're really neat, and um and I've you know been exposed to them a bit, but I, I kind of just enjoy a, a good old lightweight pedal bike and um. So I'm on, I'm on that bicycle almost, I don't know, I say almost every day at times, every day, or I think the prescription, Dr. Wolf here says your prescription is to keep riding that bicycle and, and whether it's your motorcycle or bicycle or, you know, it's, it's, it keeps a, a guy young, youthful, in shape, and, uh, I guess keeps the beer gut down to a minimum. You got to <laughs> worry about that as you get older and, uh, <laughs> But anyway, to, to ride, you know, a two wheeler, there's, there's a lot of different kinds of two wheelers out there in life. And I ride one just about every single day of my life. And uh, so I'm a big proponent in, in, in cycling, motorcycling, cycling. And I, I try to, like I said earlier, I try to be a, be a positive uh, person in that, you know, I'm, I know we have our one percenters in the motorcycle world that, give us kind of a bad name at times but yeah. uh i try to but 99 that 99 percent of of motorcycle people are all just such good people great people a,
4: and, I, and you do yeah. i mean you do radiate goodness i think that and, and such a cool name sad wolf <laughs> <laughs> well you bird. want to know
3: my dad I, I my dad was was a police officer in downtown los angeles and uh He's still alive at the age of 93 in the same house that we grew up in here with my mom. And uh, shout out to him, you know, with the longevity. I, I, I hope I have his genes. But uh, the, chief of, the chief of police, the interim chief of police in 1959 was Thad Brown. And that's who I was named after. And the Fantastic. only other Thad, check this out, the only other Thad I knew was Thad Friday, I mean, he was a motocross racer from the, you know, the seventies. And I didn't really know him so well out there then, but we talked, oh, about 10 years ago or something. And we we're talking and I, and he said, Hey, or I asked him, where did, where did you get your name, Thad? And he goes, well, you see, my dad was a police officer in 1959. And yep, we were both named after Thad Brown. The same
4: <laughs> <That's> Hysterical. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure. I really loved hearing all your tales and and your history it's fantastic um and hopefully our, our listeners will as well i'm sure they will so uh, we'll see you on the road well thanks for having me and
3: i uh keep up the good work and this is a shout out to arthur too i like your guys's magazine of course and um i'm looking forward to hearing the podcast other people's interviews i think it's going to be going to be fun to uh see what's going on what else is going on in the motorcycle world with other people and um so keep up the good work and i'll see you guys out at the rock store i'm gonna buy breakfast for for you too sunday at the rock store how's that meet, <laughs> thank meet, you. You, out there. meet you guys out there at nine o'clock marvelous
4: <laughs> <laughs> cheerio thank you Ted.
3: okay tj you have a good day
4: cheerio okay that was great Dad. thank you so much